Let's hit it. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. We are not the government. The government is not us. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dino Files, episode number 32. Woo! Feels good to be back in a groove, I'll tell you what. I really enjoy it. Just wrote 1,500 words. I'm going to talk about the same thing I just wrote about on this episode. But not before we get to some interesting legislation. Not before we get to some news. A little bit of news, nothing... Nothing too hard-hitting, because the latter part of this episode, I believe, is going to be boring enough. So, that's how we're going to do it today. Remember, remember, uh, if you like the intro or don't, hit me up on Twitter, at DinoFiles, no spaces, no dashes, no nothing, just DinoFiles. Hit me up on there and tell me what you think. I really, really enjoy it. Oh, goodness. Streaming on Twitch as well. Bendy Straws Games. And what do you guys say we start the actual show? Here we go. Interesting legislation. Interesting legislation today. Uh, usually what I like to do is look up bills that are actually on the floor in the federal government. And I like to look those up and sort of parse through those, dig through those a little bit, see if I can see if I can contextualize those a little bit. Um, I'm not going to do that this time. What I'm going to do this time is I'm going to look at an Ars Technica story about the $20 porn unblocking fee could hit internet users if state bill becomes law. This is freaking hilarious to me. I, I think this is... Again, I just, I just think this is so funny. Um, from the story from Ars Technica. State legislation pending in Rhode Island would force internet service providers to block sexual content by default and charge a one-time fee of $20 to any internet user who wants to view porn or other offensive material online. ISPs would have to hand the money they collect over to the state so it can help fund the operations of the Council on Human Trafficking. The bill was introduced on Thursday by Democratic State Senators Frank uh, Chitone, I don't know, and Hannah Gallo. Gallo, I don't know. Is, is it Italian? Is it Spanish? I don't know. And it's titled, An Act Relating to Public Utilities and Carriers Internet Digital Blocking. ISPs, quote, shall provide a digital blocking capability that renders inaccessible sexual content and or patently offensive material as defined in subsection 11-31-1, the bill says. 
Under that state statute, sexual content includes depictions and descriptions of any act of sexual intercourse, whether normal or perverted, actual or simulated. Depictions of masturbation are also considered sexual content under this statute. So, the Wikipedia page on sexual intercourse? Like, is that going to have to be blocked? Because, I mean, technically, under this law, the Wikipedia page on sexual intercourse would be... uh, sexual content, uh, depictions or descriptions of any act of sexual intercourse, right? So this is, this is fucking dumb. This is dumb. But that's my interesting legislation for today. That's not the whole story. You can go to Ars Technica and, and read the whole story there. Another interesting news story. The FBI has been in cahoots with Best Buy's Geek Squad for at least the past decade. That's what, uh, Fox News says from the, I typically don't like to use foxnews.com, but this was such an interesting story I had to. Headline, the, uh, the FBI paid Geek Squad employees as informants. From the story, the FBI has been in cahoots with Best Buy's Geek Squad for at least the past decade. New documents obtained by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, via a Freedom of Information Act FOIA lawsuit reveal. An FBI memo ma- uh, obtained by the nonprofit Digital Rights Group reveals that Best Buy in September 2008 hosted a meeting of the Law Enforcement Agency's Cyber Working Group at a Geek Squad repair facility in Kentucky. The memo indicates that the local FBI division has maintained close liaison with the Geek Squad's management in an effort to glean case initiations and to support divisions, uh, support the division's computer intrusion and cyber crime programs. Revelations about the FBI's relationship with Best Buy just surfaced last year during the prosecution of Mark uh, Rettenmayer, a California doctor who was charged with possession of child porn after bringing his computer to Geek Squad for repair. Their relationship, according to the EFF, potentially circumvents computer owners' Fourth Amendment rights. No fucking kidding! In a Wednesday statement to PC Mag, Best Buy said that four of its Geek Squad employees may have received payment from the FBI after turning over alleged child porn to the agency. May have. Fuck you, Best Buy. I'm done with this story. Um, I fucking hate Best Buy, and now I hate them more. This is... that. That is just... That's ridiculous. That's. I think that's a patent violation of the Fourth Amendment, but... What the fuck ever. Um, Okay, next story. And this is one that I'm interested in because there have been pushes to uh, make licensing of journalists happen. Um, Pushes in in states and talks, you know, from from primarily Democratic uh, representatives and senators to try and make it to where if you're a journalist in order to be a certified journalist, you have to have a license uh, that supposedly the government would give you? I don't know. Uh, This is a story from The National. The UAE's paid social media influencers will need license under new media rules. Social media influencers who make money from promoting brands and businesses will need to secure a media license under new regulations. The move would work in professionalese... uh, What? No... The move would work to professionalize and regulate the industry, the National Media Council said on Tuesday. The license would be similar to those that magazines and newspapers acquire from the authorities. It is not intended to constrain creativity, but to ensure earnings are above board and standards are high, the council said. Licensure! That's always the way to go, isn't it? They love licensure. Licensure is always a first step to censorship, just so you know. Um, that's typically... A first step to censorship, especially government government source licensure. The bar is a little bit different. You know, in independent licensing organizations, independent watchdog organizations are different. 
But uh, if the government's saying they're going to give a license to somebody, that also means they're going to censor that entire uh, that entire sector. And my last story today from the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education from FIRE at thefire.org. Headline, Freedom of Association Officially Dead at Harvard. Woo! Kind of all saw this coming, though. From the story, the Harvard University Faculty of Arts and Science, um, yeah, Faculty of Arts and Sciences has conclusively voted to introduce the blacklist policy against members of unregistered single-gender organizations to the student handbook, hammering in the proverbial final nail in the coffin the school's been assembling for nearly two years around the right to free association. The policy, which punishes members of fraternities, sororities, and so-called final clubs, was first announced in May of, two, of 2016, and despite under undergoing numerous revisions and vetting by at least two secretive committees, there remains significant confusion as to what the final rules will look like. And while Harvard's most recent statements on the policy do provide some answers, this finalized policy leaves many unanswered questions. As when it was first announced, the current version of the policy preserves most of the key restrictions against members of unregistered single-gender organizations, barring them from leadership roles on varsity sports teams and official student organizations. According to the policy page on Harvard's website, members of single-gender organizations will not, however, be banned from leadership roles at the Harvard Crimson, a student newspaper, which is financially and administratively independent from Harvard, or from the Undergraduate Council, which functions similarly to an elected student government. A new addition to the policy following uh, from the Implementation Committee's recommendations is that members of single-gender organizations will be barred from Harvard fellowships in addition to the previously announced bar from programs such as the Rhodes and Marshall Scholarships, which require an endorsement from the college. See you in fucking court, Harvard. That's going to be interesting. Because uh, this is going to go to court. I mean, it has to, right? Um, there's no way this doesn't go to court as... A direct infringement of the First Amendment. Harvard is a government-funded funded school. Uh, they don't they don't get to do this shit. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens here. But I I, it's got to go to court, right? It can't not go to court. Anyway, that's all the news that I really wanted to cover today. Uh, there is a news story on Quillet. Let me pull up Quillet real quick. You know, I like to go to uh, to Quillet and find articles that I really enjoy. While I'm doing that, I will say uh, there was a recent episode of the Unregistered podcast from Thaddeus Russell that um, in which he talked to Michael Malice, and that was a fascinating, fascinating podcast. Uh, I definitely re- recommend going to look at that. Yeah, there's there's several really, really good articles on Quillet. Um, I read a couple of them. The Silicon Valley and the ABCs of Diversity. That's a very interesting one. The Psychology of Progressive Hostility. That's an interesting one. We are living in parallel societies. This is something that... Uh, that's that's very interesting that that I think is true it 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 kind of focuses on uh Italy's election but it's I think it's true of at least most of the western western world um it, it, there's you know it's been described I think it was uh, was it Scott Adams who described uh current society as it's like half like all of America's in the same theater and they're looking up at the same screen 
and half the United States is watching one movie and half the United States is watching a totally different movie. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating sociological phenomena that's happening right now as we speak. All right. With all of that said and done, I definitely recommend that, that uh, unregistered podcast, by the way. Um, with all that said and done, I want to move on to a discussion of ethics. And I want to move on to a discussion of ethics and anarchism specifically, and specifically from my point of view. I'm not claiming to speak for all anarchists. I'm not claiming to speak for all voluntarists. I'm speaking only for myself in this. Uh, in this. this is also going to be a post on the Rogue File. Um, and parts of this is going to be me talking. Parts of this is going to be me reading from the post that's going to go up on the Rogue File. But what I wanted to do was kind of talk about my personal ethical approach uh, and why anarchism uh, is contingent on that, really. Why, why anarchism, I think, is the ethical choice um, and, and sort of how, how all that breaks down. It's, it's an interesting thing to me, anyway. Um, existentialism, right? I, I consider myself to be something of an existentialist. I don't agree with everything Kierkegaard or Sartre says, but I, I do consider myself to be something of an existentialist. And um, this is just to explain why exactly I am and believe what I am and believe. Uh, there are prerequisites to this. Uh, the prerequisites to this are you are in agreement with or at the very least understand. You don't have to agree, but but you should understand the existentialist outlook. Um, I'll start by explaining some of the overarching points of the philosophy so everyone can be on the same page. Um, bear in mind, like a whiskey, like a Tennessee whiskey, uh, this is all distilled through me reading existentialist works and then um, charcoal filtered through Wikipedia and other sources so that I could organize my thoughts better because they tend to be very organized. So, uh, going into it, we're going to talk about a couple of little points in existentialism again so that we can all be on the same page, and then I'll move on to why the ethics matter and how they matter. Um, my first point for explaining existentialism, or not explaining existentialism, but explaining what I think is necessary to know in order to have the discussion, um, the first point is existence precedes essence. And that is the idea that uh, the realization that uh, that a person is an individual, uh, a conscious individual, before they are anything else, right? Um, they're an individual. They're a conscious individual before they can be described by whatever labels or roles they may fall into um, in society, or that society may ascribe to them, right? I have an example: uh, a voluntarist. Uh, is an individual person before they decide they're a voluntarist. Uh, further, they are not only a voluntarist. Voluntarist is just a description um, or essence of one part of a person's philosophy. Uh, job descriptors fall into this, like engineer and waiter. Uh, philosophical descriptors, like existentialist and anarchist. Religious or lack thereof descriptors, like Christian and atheist. And role descriptors, like wife and father. Those are all ex examples of essences that individuals align themselves with, right? So you have to be an individual that exists 
before you can be an essence. Before you can be a waiter, you have to be an individual that exists before you can fill that role. Uh, the individual's existence must necessarily precede the filling of those essences. The essences are ascribed to or accepted by the individual according to his or her actions, right? Uh, Sartre says, uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, he says, man, first of all, exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterward, right? So the first thing you do is you encounter yourself, and then you make decisions. You take actions, you become things, right? And those are defined, those are self-applied or applied by society after all of that has been done. This is the bedrock of the notion of freedom in existentialism. There's another concept in existentialism, it's the concept of the absurd, right? This is the notion that the universe and all uh, of that which it encompasses is inherently meaningless, and meaning is ascribed to things by individuals. Right, so people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Where the answer, the answer for an existentialist is because the universe doesn't recognize good or bad. These are human concepts. And what is, what happens, simply is and happens. Right, looking for a greater explanation of the seemingly random events is kind of futile to an existentialist because... Uh, the, the, typically, existentialism is, a, is also uh, atheism, to a certain extent. Um, well, not to a certain extent. To a great extent, it is. Uh, existentialism sort of necessitates atheism. Which is why Christian anarchists don't really jive with this too well. When I talk about ethics, and when I talk about existentialist ethics specifically, and how they, they how anarchism is kind of dependent on those for me, um, Christian anarchists tend to get upset. Um, everything meaningful to an individual can be dashed in an instantaneous brush with catastrophe, right? So one thing can happen in your life and all meaning goes away. Uh, stopping here where a sense of universal meaning is negated and practicing that negation is what makes a nihilist. And I'm going to like, the, there's a difference between nihilism and existentialism. And that difference is primarily this. Nihilists deny the capacity of the individual to ascribe meaning. Existentialists, by contrast, simply state that there is no meaning in the universe, but we ascribe meaning to it. And this explains the kind of uniquely human sense that things do, that things mean things. And they do, but not inherently. Uh, things mean things because the individual says they do, right? That's, that's, that's the concept of the absurd. There's also a concept in existentialism called facticity. This one's very important. Simply put, the facticity of an individual encompasses all that he or she is, was, and will ever be. Uh, as an example, the individual is a human, and by right of being human, their facticity dictates they will not run faster than the speed of sound. Right? A human being is not going to be able to run Mach 1. It's a physical impossibility. Uh, this exists as a limit to and a condition of freedom. You were not free to choose to be human uh, or to be born where you were or to have the genes that you have. You are, however, right, and this is where it kind of gets a little mushy, but it's important. You are free to change those parts of your facticity that are mutable. One can become an atheist after decades of being a Christian and vice versa, right? Uh, meaning that the individual is alone responsible for their facticity, especially those parts which are mutable. 
Right, so you're it's basically saying you're responsible for your own decisions and for the decisions that create the life you have. That's your facticity. And you can and do and want to, by right of being a person and not a nihilist, right? If you're a nihilist, this may not apply. But by right of being a person, you are you have a desire to transcend that facticity. You have a desire to become something different, right? Um, this is why we learn things. Another concept and the final concept I'm going to discuss is uh, authenticity. All right. Uh, this is easier to define by that which it is not. Okay. So authenticity is not inauthenticity and inauthenticity is living in a state of denial of one's freedom. Uh, and this can, this can look like a lot of different things. Determinism is a denial uh, of one's freedom. Uh, by ascribing circumstances and choices to some unseen plan uh, that governs all causes and effects in the universe. <coughs> ah, sorry. Let's find where I was again. Uh, choosing to act as one should, right? Acting as one should, acting like a lady or acting like a man or acting like whatever role or image you have. Uh, this is another denial of one's freedom as it artificially limits the real choices an individual has to those which fall within bounds of image, self-image, present facticity, or other factors. Authenticity is important, though, to existentialism because um, living authentically necessarily constitutes accepting one's true freedom, right? And one's true freedom, accepting that, means accepting the absurd, accepting that you can pretty much do whatever you want, right? Um, there's a lot of other aspects of existentialism. I'm not going to talk about them because uh, they, they don't really have much bearing on the ethical discussion that I want to have, and it would take a very long time <laughs> to talk about all of it. Um, but existentialism and anarchism, in my opinion, are symbiotic, right? They Ethics... And ethical implications from existentialism fit with the ethics and ethical implications of anarchism like, like a puzzle. It's, it's perfect. Um, at least in my view, right? Again, I'm speaking only for myself here. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sorry. The ethics of ambiguity, okay? Now we're getting into the ethics. The ethics of ambiguity is a book. And it is a book that was written by Simone de Beauvoir, who is a contemporary of Sartre and was in a almost lifelong open relationship with John Paul Sartre. Uh, and she hoped to build an ethical system on top of the accepted existentialist philosophy uh, that was mostly developed by Sartre, you know, in her time. Uh, it deals, it's important, I think, for anarchists specifically because it deals very specifically with um, freedom and oppression. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into the uh, the ethics of ambiguity. I'm just going to talk about the parts that are that are necessary for sort of understanding what I'm going to be saying. But it's incredible. I definitely recommend you read it. It's a great essay. Uh, de Beauvoir begins by defining one of the most unfortunate circumstances of the human condition, and that is that freedom is an internal drive, right? It's, it's an internal drive to do something, to transcend your facticity, to change your life in some way. That's, that's what freedom really is, and it exists in constant opposition to externalities. Uh, and those externalities, the, the external world would see that freedom abandoned, right? Because change is hard. It's, it's a struggle to change one's facticity, to transcend one's facticity. 
freedom is a necessary condition to transcending your facticity, uh, becoming something new or different or something that you want to be. Um, and she continues asserting that human life is an ambiguous soup of internal drives to transcend facticity and external pressure to derail or stop that transcendence. She posits that living ethically necessitates accepting that ambiguity. This means accepting the realities and consequences of our inherent freedom, which means accepting the consequences of the choices that we make, good or bad. <coughs> or, more often than not, good and bad. All right? She's also uh, well aware that individuals necessarily intersect in society. And this is something that is... Sometimes uh, uh, anarchists and voluntarists will ignore this. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you'll you'll hear a lot of progressives, especially, saying that, well, no man is an island, or you didn't do that alone, or things like that. Uh, they, I believe during the Obama administration, that was a thing that was said, was that uh, people were saying, no, I, I fucking, this, this is something that I did. I accomplished this. And the response from progressives and people who want to spread the wealth was, no, you didn't do that alone, right? And that's, that's respected by this, which is one of the reasons that I like it so much. And it is that, you know, no man is an island, and de Beauvoir says that our projects and our lives inevitably affect the course of others' projects and lives. Um, this places an external limit on our freedom, so long as those with whom we interact are not living authentically and shouldering their own freedom. Uh, now, I'm, I'm just to explain a different way. If the fruition of one's freedom is dependent upon the choices and facticity of others, which it is because we all intersect in a society, um, and if one of those others are not making their own free choices, then the fruition of one's freedom is necessarily impossible. All right. Uh, <clears throat> basically, you could say that freedom begets freedom, and oppression or inauthenticity. Uh, begets oppression and inauthenticity. Um, this all pretty much means that what's ethical in this context is dependent on maximizing the potential for freedom and free choices, thus maximizing every individual's ability to transcend their facticity. Transcending facticity necessarily means making choices, and de Beauvoir sees situations and contexts that restrict such action as oppressive. Oppression takes those who exist in a circumstance that can be defined by the potential to transcend their facticity, right? They've got, they can do, they can make whatever choices, they can change themselves in their situation, they can do what they want. And it traps them with external power structures or within external power structures that are imposed on them, right? That they didn't freely choose, they've got no say in the matter, really, right? Which is why uh, democracy sucks. You don't actually have any say in the matter. Uh, that is, that is oppression. Taking somebody from a situation in which they have, uh, in which they can be defined by the ability to transcend their facticity and putting them in a situation where they can't. Freedom, uh, means the capacity to transcend one's facticity uninhibited by externalities and moral authenticity demands that everyone else have this same freedom, right? If you're going to be morally authentic, you're going to realize that your, the full fruition of your freedom is dependent upon the full fruition of others' freedom as well. And that's sort of the basis for the ethics. Now that's, and that's also pretty much what I take from existentialist ethics, what I take from de Beauvoir, because de Beauvoir was a Marxist. 
And I think that's dumb. I think it's totally inconsistent to be a Marxist at the same time as believing all of this, right? And this is dumb because ownership as a concept is necessary for the transcendence of, of one's facticity, right? Um, you have to take very literal ownership of yourself in order to meet the requirements for authenticity and morality in the ethical systems of existentialism. So I, I would actually go so far as to say that self-ownership is not just a necessary condition of authenticity, but also a sufficient condition of authenticity, if you take full ownership of yourself, that's your your body, your mind, that which your body produces, all of it. If you take full ownership of that, I think that is synonymous with living authentically in the in the context of existentialism. And owning oneself, one's body and one's mind means that the life and the body have to be sacrosanct. Right? Because if maximizing freedom is valuable in itself, by definition, then going in and inhibiting that authenticity must be unethical. Right, So the body must be sacrosanct, the mind must be sacrosanct, and that which the body produces must be, must be sacrosanct. Those, those, those things have to stay property. Here you have the basis for nonviolence and voluntarism. Okay, all you have to do to complete the voluntarist anarchist puzzle is to see the necessary link between self-ownership and the ownership of property. And this is something where this is why I think it's dumb for her to be a Marxist. This is why I think it, it doesn't make any sense, because property simply um, that which one owns and that, that which is one's own and no one else's. Right. It's a, it's a really good way to define your life and your body, but it also applies to one's labor as a product of that life and body. And if I choose freely and without coercion to sell my labor to someone for whatever price they're willing to pay, all right, and then they give me currency, and I go give that currency, which serves as nothing more than a transferable representation of the labor which my body produced, right? If I go give that to a merchant for his or her stuff, for his or her wares, right? Does that transaction not then extend my ownership of myself to the items that I purchased? I took a representation of that which my body has produced, my labor, and I gave that to someone else in exchange for something that I valued equally, right? And so this, this representation of my labor, I, I, I transmuted money into a thing, right? And money is a representation of my labor. I sold my labor. I got money. I then transmute that money. I transmute my labor into money, and I transmute that money into an item or a piece of land or something like that, right? Anything that you, that you can buy. This is, this is why I think it doesn't make any sense for existentialist ethics to also be Marxist. Um, I, I don't, I don't see how you get there from there, right? Um, I, I, I haven't seen a convincing argument that disproves that, that idea that I sold my labor for money and then I gave that money to a person who sold the thing to me, 
And that thing is mine because it's a product of my body. Right? It represents a product of my body. I don't understand how that doesn't make sense. And I don't understand then the arguments that, that it's not. That, that property, whatever it is, right? Because Marx is trying to make a distinction between private property and personal property. That's a distinction without a difference. It's stupid to try and make that distinction because number one, it's totally arbitrary. Number two, there's no difference between the two, really. I purchased both, right? So that's, again, that's the, that's sort of the, the rationale for market anarchism. Um, but I think it's also the rationale for what voluntarists and libertarians and, uh, and anarchists call the NAP. And that is that an ethical and authentic action must not infringe on the property of another, right? Which includes life, body, mind, and the things that person owns. Um, further, a necessary condition of ownership is that the property which has been acquired must have been acquired by means which constitute an ethical and authentic action, right? So for a thing to be considered property, it must have been acquired ethically. That's a, that to me is a necessary condition of ownership. Otherwise, by acquiring property through means which do not constitute an ethical and authentic action, the property acquired is in fact stolen, and the one who acquired it is a thief. And this is, this definition of a thief and the definition of an oppressor are two perfect descriptions of government. Government being any organization with a monopoly on force. That's the necessary and sufficient condition for being a government, is that you, have an, that you are an organization with a monopoly on force. And so government's not only a thief, but it's also an oppressor. Um, if these connections and philosophies make sense to you and your civil status, then by these definitions, in this context, you are living inauthentically, denying your own freedom, and denying the freedom of others. Right? It's a simple, it's, it's, it's very simple logic, one link after another. And that's why I, that's why I'm a voluntarist. That's why I'm an anarchist. I believe those are necessary for ethical and authentic experiences. Um, I'm not going to say that's not, that's not going to change, right? We have to be open to new ideas. We have to remain open to being proven wrong. I haven't been yet. People who argue against this logic, they don't argue against the logic. They don't argue the ethics, and when they try to, they introduce more fallacies than they started with, right? People who say, then just leave, right? We, I talked about this on the taxation is theft, uh, is theft episode, episode 30, right? People who say, just leave. What you're saying when you say that is that ethics have geographical boundaries. And that doesn't make any sense, right? The, the people who argue against this ethic, again, like I said, they, they introduce more fallacies. They introduce more confusion than they started with. They can't just argue the ethics. They have to use uh, inaccurate or their preferred definitions of words and things like that. They can't actually argue against this ethic, against this system of ethics, rather. But again, that's just for me. That's why I'm a voluntarist. That's why I'm an anarchist, because I'm an existentialist, because I don't... Because I, I value the freedom to transcend one's facticity, to become something else. I didn't used to have a podcast. Now I do. I didn't used to write a blog. Now I do. 
right? And that, that should go all the way up. That to me is true freedom. And I, uh, I, I value that for everyone because again, if, if no one, if one person is not truly free, then no one is because there's like a, there's the, the kind of concept of the butterfly effect, right? Everybody interacts with everybody eventually. The, 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 everybody has a causal relationship on someone else's event. And that event in their life, their reaction to it, all of that has a causal relationship on someone else's event. Right? No one exists on an island. And that's why we have to value freedom for everyone. And not just for ourselves. And uh, I'm, th- I'm going to end it there. I'm done. Wow, that went a lot faster than expected. We're going to end up with a, a 36-minute episode. That's really short. Wow, I feel like I actually didn't do enough work. But I, I spent a lot of time writing on this. And this is also going to be posted to the Rogue File uh, tonight, same time as I'm releasing this on 310. And this is going to be released there. Remember, remember, you can contact me on Twitter at Dino Files. You can donate to the show through airad.io. You find the shows and there's a donate button right there. Or you can donate via roguefile.com. That's the blog, uh, the blog that runs concurrently with this podcast. Either way, cool with me. Um, there is a merch store. If you would like to get something for your money, that's not just a show that that I hope you enjoy listening to. Uh, There's a merch store there, so you can get Dino Files and Rogue File merch. Uh, I also also have a Litecoin, an Ethereum, and a Bat wallet. And I also accept Brave Payments. And those are all the different ways that you can donate for your convenience. If if you found value in the show, uh, please kick some value back. Uh, this is really, again, I don't, I don't sell data, I don't serve ads, so this is the only way that I can earn off of this, is through your kindness and generosity. Uh, there's also a Patreon. So, I believe that's everything. I'm on Minds, also Dino Files, but frankly, I prefer Twitter for now. And um, I think that's it. I will see you all next week, lovely, lovely people. This show is part of the Alternative Internet Radio Podcast Network. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io.